When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today, I have... Austin Risser with me. Austin, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you doing, Brian? I'm good. And you have um, the distinction of being the last person I saw a Predators game with. <laughs> so it uh, was not the outcome we were hoping for, but it felt really good to get back into the building. So thank you for hosting me. Absolutely. Was glad you could attend. Once again, I, uh, I have to echo your sentiment. Not not the outcome we were looking for, but if nothing else, we uh, our GM seems to have uh, taken an active approach this off season. So we'll be cheering yeah. for yeah. a few new guys. I agree, and you know I always think any opportunity to drink cold beer and yell at grown men playing a game, it can't be all that bad, right? That's not a bad way to spend a couple hours. But uh, thanks for joining us today. You you know. It's interesting because a lot of people are familiar with the bank, right? I mean, it's it's a large institution. We do business up in Ohio and Cincinnati in particular, so kind of really well known there. But I don't think many people appreciate the work you do with privately held companies, family offices, either be they purely financial or still have an operating company. So I'm excited to get into that with you um, and how you serve those folks. Uh, but before we do, Give us the background of the story and, and how you ended up um, at Fifth Third in Nashville. Yeah, sure, sure. Thanks again for having me, Brian. It, I, I would say that my my path into commercial banking is unusual, though the more people I speak to, uh, not just in commercial banking, but really across the financial spectrum, I, I'm starting to lose track of what a typical path might be. 
So I think that that story itself is getting a little tired. I actually, in undergraduate here uh, in Nashville at Vanderbilt, I actually focused a lot more on geopolitical science. Uh, my thesis uh, focused a lot more on natural resources uh, and what uh, geopoliticians would refer to as the natural resource curse. And so coming out of undergraduate and then through graduate school, uh, I really focused more on natural resources, which led me into energy and being oil and natural gas into power utilities. And I spent about five years really focused on uh, oil revenues and then that transitioned into renewable energy, which took me into uh, energy risk, <laughs> which eventually brought me uh, here uh, to more of the traditional commercial banking here at Fifth Third, uh, where I, I describe myself as industry agnostic. So it you know, manifests itself. It's one of my favorite parts of my job is that I get to look at companies and work with people uh, who really do you know, entirely different things across the industry spectrum, across the functional spectrum, what they're looking to do. And it, it, makes, uh, it makes for a fun day when, when I can talk about trucking in the morning, uh, renewables over lunch. And then, you know, IT processes at dinner, um, it keeps the, keeps the brain moving. And it must really provide good perspective and context, though, because you've been, you haven't just been a relationship banker for your entire career, right? So you've understood how, you know, both the sell side and the buy side, I suppose, of some of these corporate entities work. And that must be helpful for your clients, I would think. Well, I, I certainly hope it is. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, my first job uh, out of school was actually best described as project management. So I was out on site um, at some of these, you know, burgeoning utility scale renewable energy fields, you know, telling them now, you know, install the transformer there. Uh, nope, that post goes here. And then that evolved into work as a financial analyst for actually a large privately held equity firm. Um, and so my first work really running return and project viability analysis was on the equity side, you know, transition into more of a credit risk perspective for several years at a large institution here in the U.S. that was on the debt side. Uh, and so it was really only about five years ago that I came over to Fifth Third, and that was really my first role on the relationship management side. So it's, uh, I, I like to think that it helps. You know, I, I think that if, if nothing else, it has provided me with a certain ability to empathize with some of the concerns, right? Particularly when we start to talk about some of our family office clients. Right. And, and that's the, the perfect segue. You know, this show is, is oriented towards high net worth individuals and family offices and then the financial and professional services folks that work with them. So what was it that compelled you to make the move to Fifth Third initially? Well, it was really two things. Um, it was a desire uh, by my wife, Caitlin, and I to get back to the Middle Tennessee area, which was uh, is an area where she is from. Uh, most of our family is here, or I'd say within a, you know, a three-hour drive of here. So it was getting back closer to family and our dearest friends that were here. And that really spurred my desire to look at other uh, professional opportunities, 
you know, we were very happy where we were previously. Um, but when you kind of open your eyes and start looking, that's when the opportunities come. Specifically to this role at Fifth Third, it was that there was a team here that I had some, uh, I'd say, prior connection to, some familiarity with that I trusted. As you pointed out, Brian, the move was a functional change for me. And so it was very important as I was going to move into a new role, which always comes with learning, uh, that I was moving to a leadership team that I trusted um, and to an institution uh, that had capabilities that aligned with what I wanted to do in my career. You know, there, there are uh, plenty of institutions out there that uh, I would say don't necessarily have the capabilities to support me when I go out and, and want to call on larger companies, want to call on family offices that have, you know, needs uh, whether they be syndicated finance or capital markets or advisory uh, that Fifth Third can boast. And so the, the, those were some of the boxes I was looking to check with the move. Absolutely. And I ask everybody who, who if they say they work with family offices, this is the question they always get. So bear with me, but could you please define a family office for me? Well, I, I can do my best. I, I, I'll tell you, I, I'm relieved to hear that uh, you asked this of everyone. And, uh, Ever, and everyone has I, a different answer. Yeah, so I was going to say, uh, so I'll, I'll give you answer number 50. Yeah. When I think of a family office um, and when I refer to a family office internally or externally, I am thinking of a investment vehicle that has its roots in an individual or maybe a group of individuals who have a personal tie to one another, traditionally a family. Though what I have found is what uh, that definition of a family is expanding in 2021 to maybe be close friends, um, friends of friends, but it's an investment vehicle put together by people who have a personal relationship to achieve some goal, some priority of the underlying individuals. And that could be long-term generational wealth transfer. It could be uh, redeployment of funds that are really first time, right? From individuals who were very successful in a business venture and have come into funds uh, of substantial means really for the first time in their lives. And they're looking for a way to responsibly deploy it. Uh, so I, I think it can look a like a lot of different things. I think that's probably the right answer. <laughs> but it is fascinating to hear how people kind of respond because it is, a, to use the technical term, squishy definition. <laughs> um, and so explain how internal to the to Fifth Third, which obviously is a, is a large corporate entity, but how family offices fit within within the machine there yeah absolutely so what, what i would say is you know fifth third as you mentioned is a a large organization you know we're now top 10 in the united states in terms of assets uh being deployed and and that is a point of pride and we've gotten to that point by both harnessing the i'd say the collective expertise uh, and capabilities that we have, but also leaving a, a good portion uh, of the, I'd say, burden on that expansion 
with, with the local teams, right? And so uh, here with Fifth Third Tennessee Commercial, our coverage of family offices has predominantly been focused at the Tennessee commercial level, right? And going out and meeting those family offices that we think, uh, one, uh, have the, the discipline, right, to go out and, and do the right types of investments. And uh, then two, it'd be those family offices, frankly, who their needs align with what Fifth Third can bring. You know, Fifth Third seeks to be a advice provider, right, and a partner at, with, with all of our clients and prospects. And and I think there are there are a lot of very good companies out there, a lot of good family offices out there, um, that you know maybe that's not what they're looking for in a partner. Um, but uh, for us, it's I, I can say we've found some very good people, some very good. Uh, offices here in Tennessee and elsewhere throughout our footprint that we've been uh, very pleased to partner with. And do the majority of your clients still have an operating company? It's a good question. I would say that the majority, and and I'll just speak really to my own personal book, this isn't going to be indicative across Fifth Third, but a lot of the family office clients that I work with have some underlying operating company. Uh, or in many cases, many operating companies. Now, a, a lot of where me on the commercial side are coming in to advise and work with them is on specific operating companies. When you go to up top to the family office or that holding company, if you want to call it that, that's really deploying that capital, that would really be more where while on the commercial side, we may advise them and certainly have a direct relationship there, up at that family office level is really where Fifth Third's private bank would come in and, and look to provide certain advice and expertise. Um, you know, Fifth Third private bank manages over 36 billion for a small number of significant families across the country. And it's really designed to employ a team approach in developing a unique strategy for each of those clients. And so that's where um, you kind of have Fifth Third as a holistic organization looking to serve not just the family office up top, but also those operating companies down below. And it's been my experience, regardless if you still have an operating company or not, there's often a large concentration, a concentrated position into a certain investment, be it still the Opco or you know post-liquidity event a company that is not publicly traded, but that you have a large, um, large uh, block of stock. How do you work through the diversification question and help families work through that? Yeah, sure. So it's a good question. I, I think that a lot of that diversification question is going to be driven by that family office's priorities right? And what they want to look for. There are, you run into the question of how is a family office looking to really drive liquidity, in which case maybe that points you towards certain investments such as real estate that can be interest generating, right? Or some other types of traditional operating companies where maybe that wealth is going to be more, uh, I'd say, trapped is the wrong term, but contained within that operating company on its balance sheet, 
to where it really is going to drive substantial wealth accretion, but it may not be the kind of interest generating asset that they look for. So if a family office is looking for that kind of interest generation, it points you in one direction. Uh, you know, if that's not really the priority at that time in the family office's investment cycle, then it can point you in another direction. Regarding, I mean, I think the other thing you have to think about when you're talking about diversification is also across industry, right? And this, this all goes back to priorities of the family office and the investment horizon. But there are some industries that are just going to be, I'd say, more uh, compatible with certain horizons. You know, th th there are plenty of very, very high growth industries um, that maybe are, you know, we'll take the services sector, tend to be able to scale a little bit quicker and maybe are, are a little more compatible with shorter investment horizons. You look at, you know, other industries uh, that are extremely strong and have a great investment opportunity, but maybe are a little bit more compatible with longer investment horizons. So it's really all, you know, trying to learn what the priorities are of the family and how different sectors, different asset classes can properly align with those priorities. So to piggyback on top of that, pretty much every family I know is looking to, you know, by definition, deploy capital. And oftentimes that is part of a bolt-on acquisition or maybe a strategic acquisition of um, some operating company in existence. How do you all work with those families to help them identify potential acquisitions from a strategic standpoint? And then tactically, how do you help them execute on those acquisitions? Yeah, sure. So. What I'd say is it all starts with the conversation and bringing in the right teammates. You know, we have a, a terrific corporate finance team, a terrific uh, M&A transaction team here at Fifth Third that really keep their fingers on the pulse of the market and what's out there across a variety of what we would call our power alleys, right? Those are sectors uh, where we really have a defined expertise and are looking out for those. So it all starts with that introduction and making sure that we have the right teammates across our footprint that are really leveraging all of the connections, all of the intel that we're gathering uh, to bring those opportunities to bear, right? Once an opportunity is sourced, whether it's through Fifth Third or family office, individual meeting a guy who met a guy who's looking to sell, right? And everything in between, it, it comes back really to the coverage team and, and just talking to them about what, again, their priorities are. And I don't mean to sound like a broken record there, but it, it really drives everything from the type of company to the asset class, like I already said, to the capital structure that you want to put in place. Uh, and if it's a capital structure where, you know, senior debt is a prudent part of that capital stack, uh, then, you know, it, it's great to have that opportunity uh, to evaluate those opportunities alongside them. Uh, what I have found, uh, or really what I've experienced, is that the most successful ways to bridge that, that family office, that senior bank partnership with Fifth Third, are the ones where we're part of that discussion very early on, right? When we can be part of that discussion very early on, then we're able to set expectations both ways, 
family office to fifth third, fifth third to the family office regarding, you know, what uh, appetites look like. You know, th there are going to be some deals out there that are fantastic deals for equity, that are fantastic deals for debt. And then, you know, a lot of them are out there where it sits right in between. And that's really the sweet spot that we want to try and work with our family office partners to find. And how are you working through <laughs> this need to deploy capital, right, in order to keep growing, um, but also managing what have become sky high valuations in the marketplace that, that don't seem to be going away anytime soon, given the amount of liquidity in the system and just where multiples continue to, to, to drive. How are you helping clients think through that? Yeah, I, I think it's a really great question, Brian. We, we I, I think, as you rightly point out, there is just an excess of capital out there um, that, that is, you know, uh, anxious to be invested and, and to put to work. Um, what I would say is we really have focused with our clients, um, and this goes back many years, but it's just as true today as it has ever been, on running a thorough diligence. You know, you need, what I've seen is that the most successful family offices are those that can maintain their excitement around an investment, around deploying capital, but can also maintain a discipline, both through their diligence process and their investments. Um, and that's really how I've seen successful family offices weather uncertain times whether that's something like the last 18 months or 2008 or going back before that. It's finding a sense of discipline in that evaluation process that works for them and is aligned with what they're looking to achieve. Um, and yeah, so it, it's the diligence. It's And so let's transition away from the quantitative issues and maybe more of the qualitative ones, because when you're talking about family offices, Inherently, they are families, and like mm -hmm. every family, they're crazy and schizophrenic and have, you know, and this is this would include my own. I'm not saying that we're a unique snowflake here, but, and especially given this generational turnover we're seeing between the baby boomers handing off to the millennials, I mean, we're doing the same thing in our family, at least, you know, theoretically, how do you help manage through that, what I call the kitchen table conversation of the G1, you know, alpha male wealth creator, <laughs> having to understand that there, there needs to be a plan in place, or at least a conversation of what the intent is to keep the continuity of the family moving forward? Yeah, I, what, what I would say is, um, for, from my seat, Brian, it is always ideal when those kitchen table conversations can happen at the kitchen table before I'm there. <laughs> That's, uh, so it, it's one aspect that in commercial banking, I don't have to face all that often. What I think is important for people in my position to take into account is recognition that those conversations are taking place and that individuals who maybe were the decision makers at a family office for the past 30 years are seeking to transition certain capabilities to individuals of the next generation. 
Um, and that that transition, as is the case with all transitions, can bring with it uh, certain conflicts, right? Certain discrepancies in management style, in investment preference, uh, in uh, who the ultimate decision maker is on a very yes, no basis. And that's just something that it goes back to making sure that we are plugged in with those family offices to know what their priorities are, right? I, I have several clients that uh, are in the middle of that transition. And what I've seen is that the most successful transitions occur not overnight, but it's a very gradual process of individuals, you know, establishing an interest or kind of gently working their way into the decision-making protocols when they're, you know, quite young uh, or, or, you know, fresh out of school, fresh into the industry. Uh, not so much because that's the time for them to be assuming the reins, but because it's very difficult for someone to go from, you know, one job, maybe in the private sector and the public sector into family office decision-making overnight. There's a certain uh, cultural uh, I'd say assimilation that needs to happen for someone to step into the role of being in charge of, you know, their family's wealth, uh, which I, I think is the case in a lot of family offices. So I agree with you. I think the families that socialize these concepts early on, earlier the better, always. Where have you, where have you seen the fact pattern always fail? Like, where does it, where do you see it go wrong with these transitions or false starts on transitions? So I, I would say that I have been fortunate enough to not see any go where I would say wrong, where I would slightly qualify the question and say, where have I seen bumps along the way or learning experiences? has really been when a transition is rushed or where it is unclear, not just within the family office, but externally to partners that that transition is occurring, right? I, I really think it's important as family offices are working through transitions that that next generation or that next individual who's being brought in uh, into that decision-making group it has, you know, the introductions to their entire world of partners. Now that could be at operating companies. It could be at financial institutions like my own. It could be at other financial partners that are out there. But I think the more that people who are seeking to make that transition can bring everyone into the table, if not make it explicitly clear what's happening, you can make it implicitly clear. Start having individuals sit in on meetings Right. I, I, I still think that as the world has gotten uh, bigger and I and the Internet has exploded and it seems like everyone is closer, that the importance to meet people on a one to one basis and get that relationship going has never been more important. I think it, if anything, it serves to differentiate more and more the importance of having a personal relationship with who we're looking to do business with. And it's hard to overemphasize the importance of being able to just sit across the table from someone, even before they're a decision maker and have them be part of that conversation. What is the biggest worry 
right now within the family office community that you serve? What are people concerned about? What's top of mind for them? First the keep, the keeping them up at night thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that there are a lot of, you know, quick responses to that question that, that have varied over, over the past five years. You know, for, for several years, it may have been cybersecurity. You know, how is that impacting them? Uh, I, I think right now what I'm hearing most is a concern that they are being disciplined in where those investments go. I, I think that one of the, if you want to look at opportunities that has come out of the last 18 months of turbulence, is that there are a lot of companies out there that are either looking uh, to cash out because of fear of impending tax laws, right? Or are looking to cash out because successful or not, the last 18 months have been a tough time to own and run a company. There have been a lot of demands on leadership, on ownership of companies across the industry spectrum that it's no longer just an operational or financial. I think there have been heightened concerns around human resources, right? Around just pure uh, employee logistics and relations that maybe those leadership teams didn't have to be as in the weeds on in years prior. And so as it has become, become trickier to run those companies, a lot of them are coming up for bid or are looking to exit. And so the opportunities that family offices have are coming from a lot of different industries that they haven't always investigated properly, uh, or I'd say investigated uh, as fully because the opportunities haven't always been there. And so the biggest concern that I'm seeing is family offices making sure that they are getting smart on these potential investments before actually you know putting their money to work and that looks like not to be a broken record but again heightened diligence there are things like you know a quality of earnings report that a lot of uh, buyers will run that maybe you know five or ten years ago were kind of a, a nice to have a belt and suspender uh, but today um, are I, I would say largely just thought of as a common sense, we have to have this. And, and so I think that those are kind of the trends and diligence that are a lot of family offices are using to make sure that they feel secure in what they're about to do. So that leads me to an interesting question. Heading into the second half of the year, are most families bullish or bearish on their underlying investments the economy, their business plan, et cetera. And we're, and we're recording this September of 2021. Yeah. I, it's a difficult question to generalize across all of them. What I would say is that the knowledge that there could be changes coming, right? That there is uncertainty around exactly when effects of this pandemic could actually be resolved. I think a lot of us were hoping that 2020 would stay in the rearview mirror. And one of our running jokes has become that rearview mirror is broken because I feel like I'm still looking at it in some regards. Yeah. Um, what that has done is a lot of that uncertainty has really crystallized a focus of family offices on 
their investments on the operations that underlie them. And what I've seen is a lot of the most successful family offices are staying closer to their investments than they ever have before. Right. I, I think there, there's certainly uh, a lot of uh, investments out there that for many, many years maybe had the benefit of a family office being able to be a little bit more removed. Right. And, and maybe just kind of put it on a shelf and forget about it. And for better or worse, I think the last 18 to 24 months have focused people to be more in the weeds so that they're not getting surprised. Um, with that trend of family offices and just ownership in general being maybe a little bit more involved than they have historically, I think the hope is that they won't be surprised. And so maybe there's a little less fear as we approach the last, we'll call it four months of the year uh, that surprises could come about. So speaking of the rest of the year and surprises, I've got a non-family office question for you here. Okay. Will Vanderbilt football win a game this season? <laughs> and for those of you who are not watching the video, hanging his head in misery, clearly a longtime Vandy football fan. I, uh, well. Co coming off a, of a pretty uh, depressing loss against ETSU. You know, I am a Vandy fan. Uh, I have been for a long time. My, uh, beyond just attending that wonderful university, uh, my, I have other family members who have been there, so I've been tied to it for a long time. Uh, what I will say is that hope springs eternal when it comes to this. I, I do, I, along with most Vandy fans, am very excited about the, you know, the new uh, regime, the new coaching staff that we have in place. Um, and I, I, I think the schedule sets up all right for us to get a, a few wins this year. But uh, I'll, you know, I, I've said this before, uh, you know, in the past 15 years, there have been a couple of seasons that started off uh, not quite meeting expectations and we went to a bowl. So, as I said, hope springs eternal as a, uh, as a college football fan. So my wife went to high school with, with Clark Lee, and I know some folks that know him pretty well. I'm bullish on the program, the organization with him, but poor the game last week, tough. Although I tell, I've got two boys and I'm raising them Vanderbilt fans, even though I didn't go there. And I, and I tell them it's not out of spite, but it is a good life lesson to understand that you will get your teeth kicked in. And you need to keep showing up. And this is not about what happens this season or even in the span of five years. Let's see the graduating class of Vanderbilt football 2021, 20 years out versus mm -hmm. the other teams they play. And, and let's make a, an assessment at that point. So let's keep some perspective here. Absolutely. I, I would say that the, the, the timing of that first game was unfortunate simply because my boss played for ETSU oh. and I found myself driving to and from Knoxville, Tennessee on Tuesday with him, which was about six hours of dashboard time for us to relive many facets of that game. Mm. Uh, mm. None of which I, I cared to recall. Yeah. So um, the good news is that I do not have any trips planned with former players of any of our upcoming games. So if nothing else, I hope that bodes well for Vanderbilt's chances, that there isn't an open opportunity for me to be 
mocked may not be the right term, but I, I, I am also bullish on the career. I have heard of many, while I haven't had the opportunity to, to meet him myself, I've heard nothing but positive things about the character of the new coach, uh, the new coaching staff. And uh, that's where a good program starts. I agree. And like I grew up saying, watching my New York football giants be terrible, pitchers and catchers coming in March. So just hang in there for six months and, you know, baseball season's right around the corner. So, well, Austin, I want to thank you for joining us. It was a lot of fun and uh, appreciate your insight and perspective on working with families. If people are interested in learning more about the work that you do or the, the services that, that your firm provides to family offices, what's the best way for them to connect with you and learn more? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, best way is, you know, reach out uh, via, via email or phone number. You know, I can certainly be reached. Email is austin.rissler uh, at 53.com. Best phone number is 615-687-8068. Uh, would appreciate you know reaching out uh, directly to me. I'd be always be happy to put you in touch with Paul Anderson, who's the d- director of Fifth Third's private bank here in Tennessee. Uh, he's worked in the investment sphere uh, for high net worth and multifamily offices for more than 25 years. And, and you know, as I mentioned at the kickoff, our, our private bank manages over 36 billion. Uh, so it, it's a good sized bank that certainly is going to bring the capabilities to bear that, you know, significant families across the country could look for. Yeah, absolutely. And I've had the chance to meet, talk with Paul, terrific person and huge amount of resources there. And uh, let him know that my email address has not changed. So when he wants to invite me back to the box for the Preds games, he knows where to get me. I just want to make sure I'm not caught up in spam somewhere, but Austin, thanks for joining us. It's a lot of fun. And uh, I look forward to speaking again soon. Absolutely. Thank you for the time, Brian. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.